Hello, my friend. Welcome to a special bonus episode of Creative Elements. To continue to celebrate our 100th episode this week, I'm airing a second interview with yours truly. This interview came from the Danny Miranda podcast where I appeared as a guest just last week. I thought Danny did an excellent job of interviewing and asking questions that I'm not often asked. And since this episode covers a lot of new ground, especially in comparison to the interview from Tuesday, I asked Danny if I could share it on my feed here as well. Thankfully, he was kind enough to oblige. In this interview, I talk about how to create unique messaging, my brand new framework for creators, which I call the Moat Method, what it was like to work with Pat Flynn and the team at Smart Passive Income, how my voice has actually changed over the years, and much more. If you like this episode, be sure to check out more episodes from the Danny Miranda podcast and let him know on Twitter. He is at Hey Danny Miranda, and I am at Jay Klaus. Go ahead, tag us both. Let us know that you're listening, and we'll get to that full interview right after this. Long hours, small teams, uninspiring content. Marketing for a startup is hard work, but it doesn't have to be. HubSpot for startups can help you grow your business without growing your stress. Their all-in-one platform connects your sales, marketing, and support all together so you can increase leads, fast-track deals, smooth out support, and join a platform that more than 190,000 top brands trust. Plus, they have a constantly evolving collection of resources to help startups scale. HubSpot also offers discounts for startups on their top-rated customer platform, and not the kind of discounts that barely make a dent. I'm talking about meaningful savings of up to 90%. So if you're ready to crush your marketing, look no further than HubSpot for startups. To see how much you can save, visit HubSpot.com startups. Interesting people, thought-provoking conversations, nutrition for your brain. Journey through the minds of the world's top performers and discover what it really takes to achieve your highest version. This is the Danny Miranda Podcast. Jay, thank you for coming on the show. Really grateful, honored, and appreciate you coming here today. And uh, excited to talk about a wide range of your history here today. Oh boy, wide range. Uh, Yeah, man, excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I've really admired the way you put yourself out there on Twitter and with the show. So excited to have a chance to chat one-on-one in real time here and should be fun. Yeah. So 10 cents for every tree you planted yeah yeah wow okay so that is how i bought my first tv and my gamecube uh growing up we didn't have cable we weren't uh allowed to have cable and we also didn't have video games until my dad bought us each my sister and i uh a game boy and that was cool but we didn't have console until i was able to buy it for myself and so to encourage me to help him out and spend time with him um I helped him plant trees in these fields on both sides of our house that were previously like crops, but he joined, my dad joined a government reforestation project to plant a bunch of trees in the area. And gosh, I don't know how many trees it takes at 10 cents a tree to make enough money to buy a 27 inch TV from Walmart and a GameCube, but that's how many trees I planted. Well, how I understood it is that at some point he broke up the farm into two sections because of the reforestation project like was that is that how it worked no we 
we lived on a farm and, you know, we had like the home and there's a pond in the backyard and he has a barn. And then on both sides of the home, there were already uh, fields that were crops that were rented out to farmers for a really long time. But in part because I had really bad allergies, it was like not great to have crops and, you know, harvesting happening around us. So um, I don't know why my dad decided that the pathway was planting trees, you know, like the government paid him to do that. So there's probably some money in doing that that probably recouped some of the losses from not renting that land to a farmer. Uh, And then I think the deal is like after 25 years or something, you can do whatever you want with those trees. But he just meticulously kept those those growing forests on the side of our house. And it's pretty wild to look at it now because every time I go home, it's like, wow, these things are huge now. You know, I planted these when I was a kid. Yeah. It's really cool to see how if you just plant the seed 25 years later, it actually turns into something that's massive. But take me through the process of, were, was it a sense of I'm planting these trees, I'm helping my dad on the farm, I don't want to ever do something like this, so I'm going to go to the internet? Or was there a, a <laughs> dichotomy where you say, okay, I'm, I can't be doing this forever? Like, Take me through that journey of figuring out that you maybe didn't want to be a farmer in your life. Well, I don't think I ever wanted to be a farmer. And even, you know, even my parents weren't really farmers. Like we lived out in the country. You you could call our home a farm, but my parents are both teachers. So the bigger distinction that I had to make was, do I want to become a K through 12 teacher? Like my parents, my sister, her husband, my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, like my entire extended family, the Klauses were all teachers. And it was kind of just like a, I don't say it's like a presumed thing, but it was like the family business in a way. And the one thing I knew going to college is that I didn't want to be a teacher, but you know, come now to 2022, I'm essentially a teacher, uh, in this online world of education. Um, so it's interesting to see that come full circle. But when I went to college at first, I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I knew I was most interested in writing. So I was exploring that mostly through journalism uh, then got sucked into the business college and wound up writing and teaching. So, you know, some things I feel like you just can't stop. Yeah. So I was doing research for this and I found out that the one year of journalism you took was the most impactful in your college career. Why was journalism so impactful for you? Oh yeah. Like not even close. Um, my history with journalism was I went to Ohio state and I didn't know what to major in. I think it's like irresponsible to expect a, an 18 or 19 year old to know what they want to do with the rest of their life anyway. But you're like put under so much pressure to declare this major, this intention for your career for the rest of your life when you're 18 or 19. So I went into the undecided program at Ohio state, which is actually called exploration, which is fantastic branding. And my, my guidance counselor in exploration basically told me like, congrats, you made a choice, but we can't decide for you what is good for you. You need to explore stuff. You need to try stuff out. So what do you like? And I said, well, I like writing. So she recommended that I take an independent study with the student paper at Ohio State. It's called the Lantern. And so my my expectations with that independent study were like, write three pieces that got published in the student newspaper in one quarter or yeah, in one quarter. And that would give me one credit. Um, it was like this really basic thing, but I loved it. And I found myself just hanging out in the writer's room, 
um, constantly. Like they would, there was a faculty advisor and there was a tip line and people would call the tip line. He would answer. And if it was a good story, he'd go out into the writer's room and say, Hey, here's a developing story. Does anyone want to go out and cover it? And whoever was kind of sitting in there had first dibs at it. So I would just sit in there all the time. And that let me, um, I covered like the riots for, uh, like the Egyptian riots back in 2011. Uh, it allowed me to cover Terrell Pryor's tattoo gate fiasco at Ohio state and like call his lawyer, um, which allowed me to cover the football team as a freshman and sophomore, which they don't let people do. And all of that just taught me so much about writing in particular, the inverted pyramid style of writing. And I still use that stuff all to this day, but most of the stuff I learned in the business college, like I don't. What's the inverted pyramid style of writing? Inverted pyramid is if you think about an inverted pyramid, like literally visualize it, a pyramid that's upside down. The base of the pyramid is the most important details of a story, the who, what, when, why, and how. And the idea of when you're writing a story for the newspaper, you actually want to lead with the most important, most interesting information, which is opposite of what you learn with creating online a lot of times. A lot of times online, it's like you want to keep attention by holding the payoff until later and later in the video. So you have people watching for a long time. You can monetize with ads. But with the newspaper, you wanted all the most important details right up front because there were literal physical space constraints to newsletter or to print because you had to make all these stories actually fit on the page next to each other in the form factor of a newspaper. So when they had problems getting things to fit, they knew they could go to the end of a story and just cut off a sentence or a couple sentences or a a paragraph and nothing was really lost because all the most important details were up front. But they also taught you to be like ruthlessly, um, like you would just destroy all the fluff in your piece. Nothing didn't have a place. Everything that you write should have a reason for being there. Uh, you don't need crazy adjectives or all this flowery language, like get to the point, tell me what I need to know. And that's still really good writing advice today, unless you're trying to write like fiction or narrative nonfiction, something longer form, you really want to be concise. That's so fascinating about the difference between keeping attention online versus when the newspaper version of keeping attention, which is just to hook people right in, which uh, an important hook is is essential for both, but the payoff, how you described, is different. And I've never really thought about that. And it leads me to ask how you've thought about taking that, if you've taken that style to online medium and seeing how it would fail or if you have how have you used that inverted style and had to navigate through an online medium so the feedback you would often get from an editor if you didn't do inverted pyramid style writing well is that you were burying the lead and the lead is like the the most important idea that people need to know or like the most attention grabbing piece it would say that you, you had three sentences before you got to the point of why people should care. Same thing is true if you're writing, especially on Twitter. You know, like we hear a lot about threads and the hook right now. You can't bury the lead. You need to start with something that grabs people's attention. So the more that you lean into this inverted style pyramid of inverted pyramid style of writing, you will get attention because you'll stand out as someone who is just giving you what you want right away. And you can 
still go pretty in depth and long form and do that well. But I think, you know, there was this period of time, which I think we're probably still in where people would write a book around what could be like a blog post. So to take like an idea that's pretty explanatory in 2000 words and then turn that into 250 pages, you kind of have to add in some fluff and some yada yada when you can get the idea from the, the, the title, the table of contents and a couple of chapters. Uh, but the people who just write very densely, not dense in the way that's like hard to read, but dense in the way that every line has a purpose and is worth reading. Those writers really do stand out online because there's no waste. It's not, it's not like junk food, you know, and you're not like saying, all right, well, get to the point, get to the point. Everything is like, yes, yes. Okay. And you're just following along. And it's a really fast read. Hmm. On the, the topic of turning books into, or blog posts into books, I kind of want to push back here and say that I think it's, it's amazing that blog posts turn into books. When you think of this statement, normally it's like a negative connotation. But think about how amazing it is that there are, there are people, first, that the blog post is validated, that this is a good blog post. And then there are people who never saw the blog post and now get to read the blog post in a longer form. So I've never really thought about it as a positive thing, but just you talking now kind of framed it as such to me. Well, I actually think it's like a negative thing (laughs) because the way that I see it most often is this thing, like books, writing in general is a means for sharing information. It's knowledge transfer. And to me, you want the most efficient knowledge transfer possible If you're in it for knowledge, if you're in it for entertainment, you might want something to be longer. But if you're in something for knowledge transfer, you want that to be as efficient of transferring that knowledge as possible. And there were a lot of books that have been written in the last two decades that were made into books simply because the author wanted to have a book and have the opportunities that the book unlocked. But the actual information they're trying to transfer could have been transferred in a much smaller form. Uh, efficiently, you know, as a blog post. Yeah, I, I think it's it's one where the positive examples of that, at least to me, pop out right away. For example, your friend James Clear, Atomic Habits, those were blog posts that he turned into a book. And how amazing is that? The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck by Mark Manson, similar thing. The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel, same idea. Those are all incredible books that I'm so happy are in the hands of more people, but that started out as blog posts. There are also a lot of blog posts that probably shouldn't be books. But right. I guess my question to you is, how do you figure that out? Well, it's if you just were honest with yourself as a writer and said, what do people need to know? What do I need to transmit? And how can I do that most efficiently? If it does need to be a book, don't make it a book. Um, a lot of the books you just listed off are an amalgamation of many blog posts, actually, you know, like atomic habits is a great example. James was writing his newsletter for years. uh, And each one of those pieces were discrete, still like dense ways of transferring some concept to you. And atomic habits was this collection of all of those different concepts. So it wasn't like, Hey, here's what an atomic habit is. It was, let me teach you a process of building atomic habits, which required a bunch of different smaller understandings of specific frameworks and, and ideas. Um, but there are a lot of books that are, you know, I have a point of view. I have a specific thing I want to say, 
and I'm going to tell it to you in 250 pages, even though I could make my point of view clear in about 1500 words. Yeah. And, uh, and that must annoy you too, so much as a writer where you've tried to master this art of writing. Uh, and like, my question to you is like, when, when did you know you wanted to be a writer? I don't know when I decided I want to be a writer. I mean, the, the feeling that I've had for a long time is that I want the lifestyle of an author. Hmm. Like I would love to have my major creative output be a book every couple of years and everything. I, everything else I do is gravy, but really where I make my money and where I need to focus. And the only thing that I need to focus on is writing the books. Um, I'm not quite on that path yet, but I've, I've had that feeling probably since high school and it started with my AP English class. What I really loved was we had these assignments where we would read books or a short poem, and then we would have to analyze the meaning behind it. And that's a fun exercise. And a lot of times you come out of it with like these projections of what you think the author meant to say, but really the author is probably just an artist with a good sense of uh, intuition but it was a really fun exercise and that helps me get a scholarship to Ohio state. That's what told me I, I was good at writing and that I enjoyed doing it, but it probably wasn't until about 2017, 2018 that I really started to think of myself as a writer. Um, yeah. It's funny. You mentioned that you haven't really thought about doing that yet, but it's funny because you've also mentioned that creative elements you started it, as a way to potentially have a book in the future. Like even the way you frame different titles and the way you navigate, you said to yourself, how could I potentially make this into a book? So it's funny that you're kind of planting seeds for yourself to go back to where we started in terms of creating that reality. Yeah, I still want that reality, but what I'm not willing to do is just spend a year or multiple years writing a book for the sake of writing a book, because that's what turns into these books that are 250 pages of, you know, what could be 1500 words. So I I'm keeping my eyes up and creating creating optionality and, you know, the opportunity for a book to emerge from my work. But, you know, today the work that I do is helping people become professional creators online and the, the tactics and the strategies from that are so fluid. They change so fast. Trying to write and publish that type of thing as a book isn't practical. So now I've been spending a lot of time lately stepping back and saying, okay, what are the things that won't change? Because I find myself often looking at bands and musicians from decades ago and seeing the the corollary of their approach and how that applies to creators today. So there are timeless principles in how to become a professional creator that were possible before the internet. It's been more, you know, uh, it's been easier to do and more accessible with the internet, but there are timeless principles there. So I'm trying to spend more time thinking about those and building some, some thoughtware and some content behind that, because that feels more evergreen and, um, you know, sustainable. Um, over a long period of time. Yeah, I could 
even imagine the title now, Creative Elements, the timeless lessons or the timeless attributes of creators. Uh, so so let's go through a, lo- a few of them. What What do you think are the most important attributes that a creator can have that, that have been tested long term? I actually have a working framework on this that I haven't talked about, haven't written about yet. So let's dig into it. Um, <laughs> this is crazy. I haven't, I've never talked about this. So I call it the moat method, M-O-A-T, because as a business owner, you're constantly looking to build a moat to protect your business, to protect your competitive advantage, to have something that you're building that is also secure and enduring over time. So step one of the moat method to building your creative platform, you need to design your moat. You need to understand what is this thing that's going to be unique to me. And moat is an acronym. So the M stands for message. O stands for online presence. A stands for authority. And T sounds for trust. You need to say, what is the message that I have that other people aren't saying? What is this unique idea that I'm sharing to help a specific person accomplish a specific thing? Online presence is you need to have some way for people to interact with you. It's like your user interface as a creator. It's like, how do I subscribe your thing? How do I read your writing? Authority is your unique frameworks, your style of thinking. It's like this method I'm telling you right now. It's it's your unique framework around the message that you want to share that shows I'm the person to talk about this thing and here's why. And then trust is all about relationships. How do you actually build relationships with people at scale? Is it email? Is it podcast? Is it SMS? Uh, I'm thinking about that in terms of specifically um, an owned audience platform that you control. So people say, I want to hear from Jay and no third party can say, well, we're changing our rules and you can't hear from Jay anymore. Hmm. So that's step one, design your moat, message, online presence, authority, and trust. Step two, once you've designed your moat and shown what makes you unique, you need to dig your moat. Dig is also an acronym for discovery engine, income engine, and growth engine. You need to choose or decide or strategize on how people will discover your message for the first time. And to me, a lot of that is like social media or YouTube where there's organic traffic that they can find your stuff. Income strat or income engine is your kind of your business model and your product strategy, what kind of products you'll develop, uh, what your model looks like, what type of non-product based revenue streams that you have. And then G is growth engine, how to actually grow the number of people finding your business and I have about five strategies for that as well. So that's the uh, that's the book right there, Danny. That is the moat method of becoming a professional creator. That is awesome that you have that teed up and ready to go. D2C Pod, hosted by Ramon Berrios and Blaine Bolas, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. D2C Pod is a podcast about all things direct to consumer. Ramon and Blaine cover everything for starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. They talk with founders, marketers, and creators and cover topics like brand building, social media, influencer marketing, website conversion, paid media, consumer trends, email marketing, and more. So if you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, listen to DTC Pod wherever you get your podcasts. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. 
Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link slash j. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash j and let them know that I sent you. On the, the first part that you talked about, the message, online presence, authority, and trust, I'm curious, which of those do you think you do best and which of those do you think you do that you need most improvement? I think I do online presence and trust best. Uh, And why I really need improvement is message. Mm. Um, Not just having a message, but articulating it. The people who grow the fastest are the people who have a unique message that people want to hear, but haven't articulated. And that person is also the right person to be sharing that message. Yeah. And I've heard you also talk a little bit about like finding your luck, the place where you get lucky and and it's like you're first to something. And I feel also like having a unique message or a message that people want to hear, but don't know that they want to hear helps increase your luck. Yeah. For a while I was calling this message idea like your lighthouse, because to me it is what attracts people to you. Like they're wandering around their lives and there's just something that is under their skin or that they're trying to accomplish and they can't quite get there and they see your lighthouse and they start following your light towards that thing. Um, because that's what it needs to feel like to people. They need to feel like finally this person is the person to help me solve this thing. That's what creates trust, affinity relationships. And if you are one of 10 lighthouses saying the same thing, you know, you're only going to get one tenth of the results or actually practically you're going to have a tiny part of it because the first lighthouse, the biggest lighthouse is going to get 90% of the results. Yeah. That's a really great analogy. And so message is also one area I feel I struggle with as well. And so like, how does one go about figuring out a message that aligns with them? Here's, here's the thing. This is the, the, this is the truth that I didn't want to accept when I was younger and nobody wants to hear your message comes from life experience and you might have some unique experience when you're really young that helps you develop a different way of looking at things. That's really valuable, but the people who have a unique message that grows and spreads quickly, the people you look around, you're like, wow, they really sprang up fast. Take a, take Nick Huber on Twitter who talks about, you know, self-storage businesses. 
that was a perspective that people weren't sharing much. And not only did he have that message, but he had the experience like a decade worth of doing this. So he has authority and he has this giant store of uh, content to tap into. He has 10 years of experience to tap into. What I see a lot of people doing is aspiring to be a creator, which is great. Like same, but they don't have a unique experience or unique message that is attractive to people yet. Um, Because if you don't stand for something different, if you don't have some unique way of thinking about things or doing things, why would anybody be paying that close of attention besides they like you? And that's fine, but they're not going to just like buy a product all the time or, or, you know, ask for coaching services all the time. Like your message is what makes you different. And often that comes with time and experience. I like that. That that makes a lot of sense. And speaking of time and experience, I'm curious how Pat Flynn has impacted your journey because Pat Flynn, when I think of time and experience, at least in the online content game, he's one of the first people that comes to mind and you've had the fortune of working with him. So what's Pat Flynn like to work with? Pat's awesome. Pat is exactly how you would expect him to be. Um, admittedly, I did not follow Pat's work very closely. Um, he got started in about 2008 and I was aware of the fact that there was some guy on the internet who pioneered the open source income reports of their online business. And I knew that was like a big thing that started a big trend and that was Pat. Uh, and I didn't actually know his name that well or know the, know the business that well. Um, just out of you know pure ignorance, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but what's crazy, my time working with Pat, I learned a ton from him. I learned a ton from our team. Super, super talented people with a lot of experience. Uh, Pat taught me a lot about the value of relationships. And I really could see the way he fostered relationships with people, his, his audience, but also like his friends and peers. Um, it, was, it was a really, really great experience. Um, And the biggest thing that I took away from it is Pat inspired so many people, you know, like so many of the creators today that are operating at a high level point back to Pat and his income reports and his, uh, uh, affiliate business challenge. They did this thing that turned into like this, I forget what it's called. It was like online business challenge or something where he like did a one-on-one battle with somebody else to see how quickly they could grow a business to like a thousand dollars per month in affiliate revenue or something. But like he had a huge hand in convert kit becoming what it was today because he helped bring them a lot of customers. It was really, really impressive. His reach is just incredible. What's something you changed after working with him? I started thinking more about relationships. And I mean, there's some like really tactical things like, I changed the way that I did custom tags and convert kit, you know, like some really yeah. tactical stuff like that when I'm thinking about scale. But um, really the biggest takeaway was relationships. And I can just see how powerful it is to form a group of peers who are all at kind of the same level. Because I think the trap that I've been in for a long time is I'll look up to other creators like James or Ryan Holiday or, um, uh, David Perel is someone even newer, but that's closer to my age who are a few steps ahead of me with their, you know, creator business. And I'll think, gosh, if I could just become that person's friend and be welcomed into the fold, like 
my life would change. But what I'm realizing is these people actually just had peers who were at the same level as them and they all helped each other succeed. And then they were all the cohort and all these people are trying to get into that. But like, no, we, we battled through, you know, a decade of toughness with each other and like, we're good. And sometimes, you know, they'll, they'll reach a handout and that's great. But really the value is in building really strong friendships with people who are around you now who don't have an agenda other than, you know, they're trying to do their own thing and succeed and they want to see you succeed. And it's all very genuine. Yeah. That's so true. The importance of who are the people around your level who you can connect with organically. And in that, you also touched on something that Jay Shetty has actually mentioned before, which is like the idea of believing that there's one person out there who can make his career. And I've always, that's just such a fascinating concept to believe that. And he's like, I still believe that today. And when I recognized that, I was like, oh, like, there isn't one person that can make my career. Like, it's many one people and it's relationships. And so, does anything come to mind there? Like, does that resonate? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think often we don't know who that person is. Like, we think we do. We think it's this one person and we're so fixated on it. If I could just get a response to my email <laughs> and we think it's that one person. But the great thing about being a creator and creating content is every piece of content you create is a lottery ticket. Anything you put out there, you have no idea what one individual it may strike in such a way that opens one door that you walk through that now opens, you know, uh, a bunch of other doors afterwards. It's crazy. Like any, any big break you have, you can look back and tie that to some decision that you made, which you can usually tie back to some other decision, you know, and you can see how these things build. So creating content is just increasing the surface area of your luck you know people people love to say that and it's true because you just have all these different places that people may interact with and really great ideas really strong messages unique differentiated messages are really attractive to the people you're trying to attract um so it's it's a big deal talk to me about how you can succeed in a short-term venture or short-term um, creative thing that you do. Like, for example, I, I had this thread go viral uh, last week, two weeks ago. Felt great. You know, got all the dopamines. I got Apollo Ono, the Olympic medalist, gold medalist. He's liking the tweet. I got Keith Raboy liking the tweet. So it's, it's great. Everything's going great. And then what inevitably happens is a week later, it's gone. The dopamine's gone. And... Talk to me about your journey of the highs and lows of being a creator. Look, man, you got to, I mean, there's two schools of thought on this and I've gone back and forth on them at different times in my life. One school of thought is the lows are really painful. So I'm just going to plane out my emotional experience to be kind of constant and not get too down with the lows, not get too highs with the high but that's kind of a boring existence, I'll be honest. And yeah. I, I've had that existence for most of my adult life. Um, the other thing, the other way to look at it is lean into the highs, lean into the lows. You know, yeah. the sweet isn't as sweet without the sour. Um, and, you know, that's like emotionally taxing, but you also get the, the highest emotional rewards from that. But you got to realize if you're getting into this game, like you need to be signed up to be doing this for decades. Yeah. You know, people will say like three years, five years minimum, but like really it's decades because 
let's say you you get that break and something amazing happens and tomorrow you have 50,000 subscribers to your newsletter or 100,000 new subscribers to your YouTube channel. They're all waiting to hear from you and you have to reprove yourself to them. You know, the game isn't over. Getting them to say, okay, I'll give you a shot is not winning. It's, it's, it's the goal line or it's the start line. It's the starting line. So, you know, you really have to be bought into this long term. And I think you just develop a thick skin for rejection and you have to build some sort of practice of gratitude or reflection on the things that are going well, or you'll be in this like boring state of malaise all the time. Yeah. I I like the statement. Don't practice what you don't want to become. So if you are doing something just to get attention and it's not actually what you want to do in the future, then you're kind of wasting your time in a way because you're going to get those 100,000 new subscribers and they're going to want you to do that thing that you just did and you're not going to want to do it. So I think it's very important that you're wary of what you're doing. Yeah, you need to ask yourself what happens if this goes well? What if this goes as well as it could? What if this goes to plan? Because if you don't like the answer, then what are you doing? You know, you need to think through, like, if this goes really well, I expect that this will happen. And that is a future that I want to move towards. You know, I think about directional correctness more than anything else most of the time, because we're all building our own path here. Uh, And if you're not, then you're going to be that 10th smallest lighthouse that gets one tenth the results. Assuming that you're trying to build your own path. You don't really know where you're going. You don't really know what you're doing, but you can feel if you're directionally correct. You can feel like, I see how this step is moving towards this amorphous, soft, squishy thing that I think that I want. And sometimes you make small changes in the the direction that you have. You change tack a little bit, but you feel directional correctness. And that's the most you can hope for most days. Yeah. So talk to me about the moment when you felt the furthest away from where you were aiming and the moment you felt closest aligned to the path that you're, you think you're supposed to be traveling? Well, before I was a creator and I was working at uh, a venture-backed startup in healthcare, I was a product manager, product leader, and I enjoyed that in some ways, but it just, it didn't feel like I was building towards me, you know, uh, it just, it, it just didn't. And so I left to go and freelance, essentially, even though I didn't know what that was or how to do it. And I feel like I've been on a directional path ever since then. It's like, well, I don't have any income now. So what am I going to do? I guess I'll, you know, build WordPress websites and I'll write email copy. Well, I like the email part of this. I don't love the WordPress stuff because now there's maintenance and people are hassling me for access to the server and now the site's down and I didn't expect it and I have to deal with it. Let's just cut that out for my services, you know? And it's just like little changes like that all the time to say, I like 90% of what I'm doing. How do I get to 91%? Is there a theoretical point where I can actually genuinely enjoy every bit of what I'm doing? And to the extent that I can, that's, that's what I'm pursuing. When you ended that healthcare when you when you ended that job, is that the time when you learned how to live on twenty four thousand dollars a year? No, I learned that right out of college. That was the first company that we did out of college. Uh, there was a founder who was starting a ticketing company, and he was looking for uh, a co founder slash first employee. 
and I kind of fit the bill. So we, we connected and the first exercise we did was, okay, we have $50,000 in the bank from this accelerator program that we went through. What is the bare minimum we can pay ourselves to make that money go the furthest? And at the time, you know, I'm just out of college. So my expenses were really low. It was like rent, gas, food, uh, he paid for insurance. So I didn't worry about that. So it became like, you know, $24,200 per year is what I mapped out as what I needed to live. And that's what I got paid. That was my, that was my salary for the year. Uh, which was great because it really taught me how to live cheaply, which is a huge skill. If you're trying to build a business as a creator, like build a business on top of your content, not a quick thing to do, not an easy thing to do. You can generate revenue, but it's going to take a while for it to be meaningful. If you work with clients and you want to grow your top line revenue without growing a big payroll at the same time, then consider attending the Solopreneur Summit, a VIP event hosted by my friend Ken Yarmish. Ken has personally closed over $50 million in his career as a solopreneur, all in professional services. I've learned a lot from Ken and he's worked with some of the biggest names today. People like Matt Barker, Nasheen Chen, Laura Acosta, and Jake Ward trust Ken to get clearer offers and scale their business with systems. Now, Ken is running a two-day in-person summit on May 9th and 10th to help you build systems across marketing, sales, and client delivery. So now you too can grow without hiring. This will be a workshop setting. It's the Anti-Loud Obnoxious Conference with no more than 50 people who will go deep with Ken and other experts that he's brought in to solve actual problems in your business. Ken and his invited experts will show you their proven systems across personal branding, driving inbound leads, social selling, crafting scalable offers, using AI to automate client delivery, and more. Stop guessing and start learning from those who are three to five steps ahead of you. Get actionable tactics and proven systems to accelerate your pipeline, close more deals, and get out of client delivery hell. Head to trs.club summit to learn more and register for the Solopreneur Summit today. At that website, you'll see some of the other experts that are coming in that will allow you to go behind the scenes and look at their actual businesses. Again, that URL is trs.club summit. One last time, that's trs.club summit. You may or may not know that I have a bit of a domain buying obsession. Whether it's a new project idea or domains related to my existing projects, I'm buying them all. I have creatorscience.tv, creatorscience.fm. So let me tell you about my newest purchase. It's jklaus.bio. Connection with your audience is everything. We make all this content and then we want to direct our audience somewhere. Well, a great new option is with a .bio domain. Instead of some long link tree or third-party URL that people can't understand and it's hard to say out loud, Using your .bio domain for your link in bio lets you manage all your links in one spot with a custom domain that tells people exactly who you are. It's short, it's memorable, it's professional. Your .bio domain name is your way to share yourself with the world. And right now, you can get your own .bio domain name for less than $3 at Porkbun. Yes, it's a real website and a real registrar. Just visit porkbun.com creator. That's P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot slash creator. Let me tell you about one of my favorite podcasts that I've been listening to for years. It's called The $100 MBA Show. And wherever you are on your business journey, The $100 MBA Show has lessons that can help you take the next step forward. The $100 MBA Show is a best of Apple Podcasts winner, literally one of the top Apple Podcasts of all time. 
and is hosted by my friend and former guest, Omar Zenholm. Omar is a business school dropout turned successful entrepreneur, and he shares real-world lessons on starting, growing, and scaling your business. You may even know his software product, Webinar Ninja. What I love about the $100 MBA show is that these are well-produced, bite-sized episodes on everything from creating a product, connecting with your market, sales, building a team, and more. This show is legit. It does over 2 million downloads every month. Whether you're a small-time solopreneur or scaling your startup to investor level, there's valuable real-world advice for you in the $100 MBA's archive of thousands of episodes with new episodes three days a week. If that sounds interesting to you, and it should, just search for $100 MBA show wherever you get your podcasts. So like, what was one thing that living on $24,200 taught you that you didn't expect to learn? (laughs) A lot of things I expected. They still sucked, but I still expected them. Um, It taught me that most of the things that I wanted, I didn't need. You know, I could just say no to it and bad things didn't necessarily happen. Uh, It taught me that not having an office and working out of coffee shops was actually a meaningful expense on a monthly basis. Uh, Because, you know, even if I go in there and I want to sit in there for four hours, I'm not going to do that without buying a coffee. And if I'm buying a $5 coffee every day, that's $150 a month right there. Um, so yeah, it taught me like what expenses were truly necessary and which creature comforts I didn't really need and how to get by with things that were okay and how expensive dining and getting food out of the houses. <laughs> <laughs> and fast forward to today and it's like you, you've made, you've said you've made over a hundred thousand dollars last year from your creative pursuits. And that's like a pretty incredible thing. Um, like, how does that feel? Like looking back on your $24,200 salary, doing something that you kind of liked, kind of didn't, to now it's like, this is what you love, or at least close to the path. And like, you're in a completely different place financially. It's great. I mean, I feel, especially last year, because I took that year to work alongside Pat and the team at SPI. So I was on salary while still building my creator business and having the best year that my business ever had. So it was like I had Scrooge McDuck money last year. It was wild to me. It was like anything we wanted. Yeah, let's do it. And yet my bank account still grew. It was crazy. Bonkers. Um, But I'll tell you what the problem is with learning to live cheaply. It also changes how big you think. Because that salary of $24,200, when we were acquired, the acquiring company said, we want to pay you $46,000 to continue to run this company. And to me, that was a 100% increase in my salary. And I thought, this is awesome. What I should have thought is, I am still wildly undervalued. Because then, when I left that company and took a job at the healthcare company, the recruiter told me, Hey, for the director role we're hiring you for, uh, our salary ranges from 80,000 to six figures. And I said, wow, that's crazy. And then I interviewed and I didn't negotiate well. And they offered me $80,000. And I said, well, it's still almost a hundred percent increase from the year before, you know, and all the while I had other peers in the same level of position who negotiated better, who were earning $120,000 because they knew their value better. And, they also knew that the company had that budget. 
So I've had to fight uphill against my money story because I learned to live so cheaply and it really ratcheted down how big I was thinking in terms of revenue. I've really had to unlearn a lot of things and change the way I think about my value. And it's hard to do that. When you say you negotiated poorly, what do you mean exactly? What do you think you could have done better? I think I could have won the staring contest. I mean, that company, any company, when they go through multiple rounds of interviews and you know, like you're the candidate, they want you. And it comes down to negotiating on salary. They've invested so much time and effort into you being the person. They don't want to start that process over again. Adding $5,000 per month to their their balance sheet for your salary to be meaningfully higher uh, is no big deal, you know? So like practically, what do you wish you would have said or what would you recommend to somebody who's in the middle of a hiring process like that right now? I just wouldn't have accepted it. Um, <laughs> like you have the highest leverage when you're willing to walk away, but you need to, you need to have believability that they will lose you. And the only way to have like true believability is to in fact be willing to walk away. Uh, and if you know your value, you can do that because you'll say, well, I'll go get this salary for a similar position at a similar company. This is my bottom line. Uh, if you can't meet me there, we're getting started on a wrong foot and I'm not willing to do that. And most of the time people will bend to that. Um, if they can, if it's in their budget and I knew it was in their budget, but I wasn't willing to get close enough to the walk away line. And so I didn't get that top end of the budget. That makes sense. And that's really helpful. Um, you, you've talked about this money problem, or at least like the psychological problem with money. And we could say that it stemmed from the first job or the $24,200 learning to live on that. But do you believe or do you have any suspicion of a money problem before then, before that situation? Oh, yeah. I'm sure it came from my childhood. Uh, which isn't like any type of condemnation of my parents in particular. I think it's a very Midwestern, middle-class, working-class issue for a lot of people. Um, I had Tori Dunlap, who has a company called Her First 100K. She's a, a, a money expert. She's a financial, um, I wouldn't say necessarily advisor, because that's kind of like an official legal term, but she's she gives you know financial advice for women and on her podcast, she talks about the money story being embedded as a child. And I distinctly remember one of the first times I ever talked to my dad about money. We were fishing, which is when we have some of our best conversations. I love being out on the boat with him. And he told me that he was earning $60,000 a year. And he had been working as a teacher for like 20 plus years. So at that time, my life story was you go to college, you get a degree, you use that degree to go to a job and you work that job for 30 years. So if he was two thirds through his career and he was earning $60,000, I figured he was rolling it. Like that's, that's a good amount of money. Six, six figures sounded like wealth and riches to me. Um, I, I have always tethered salaries to that number, uh, because you have so much respect for your dad, your dad's your hero. And if that's what he's earning, like, I can't out earn my dad who's been doing this job for 20 years. He's the best. What do I deserve? Not that. Um, so that was a big issue for me too. How does one begin to get over that? You need to have proximity to different models. 
Hmm. You know, like not saying don't let your dad be a role model. My dad is still my role model in a ton of ways. When it comes to being a business owner and making money, like I had to change my role models to show me what is possible. You move towards what you genuinely believe is possible. And if you're thinking small, your your threshold of possible is just much smaller. You know, that's why you see these crazy stories like the guy who did Fire Festival. Like what a mess. But that guy genuine, genuinely believed that his vision for whatever was possible. The, the, the WeWork founder, too. Yeah. They are able to achieve incredible, ridiculous things because they believe it's possible. And other people can feel that. And they can't quite call you on your bullshit or talk you down. You know, So the more you believe it's possible, the more that is for you. How has doing creative elements changed the money story in your head if at all huge and i don't know if it's always from the show directly because i don't do a good enough money good enough money a good enough job asking people direct questions about money a lot of times i can deduce it or i've seen them talk about it elsewhere and that's kind of an in but if they don't if they're not open about their finances i don't want to be like so tell me about your revenue last year it's challenging i should that's that's a story i tell myself though i should ask that and a lot of people would probably be open to it but the people that i've met through the show and a lot of my peers who have gotten closer to that i learned things from changes things drastically marie poolin's a great example one of my favorite episodes one of the most popular episodes of the show she earns more than forty thousand dollars per month with her course notion mastery one product one offer more than forty thousand dollars per month to do the math on that that's four hundred eighty thousand dollars per year so that like really changes your perspective of what's possible you know um since doing the show my income has changed from like $3,000 a month from the business. Last month I earned almost $28,000. So like things are still possible, but I look at that and I said, there's still a $13,000 Delta to what Maria is doing. How do I close that? Like it, it becomes, it changes the stakes. It changes the goalposts. It changes what you think is possible. And you start asking questions like, well, what could have earned an extra $13,000? That's 13 members of the community. You know, that's, you know, how do I get 13 more members of the community? That might be a couple of concerted emails. That might be designing an affiliate package for my existing members to say, hey, you're an affiliate. Here is what I'm going to do to make it really easy for you to refer new members. It's a design constraint. You start thinking, you know, in terms of if I want to cover that gap, how do I do it? And a lot of these crazy people who have these crazy visions, it's like, well, I want to buy this building in New York City how do I do it? And you start thinking of actual solutions that'll work, which sound crazy. But if those are the solutions you go out and you make those happen, if you're absolutely driven to accomplish that thing. Jay, you speak in almost a musical way where it's almost like hearing a rapper perform or a musician in that it's very melodic though. Your pacing, your cadence, how much of that is learned and how much of that is natural to you i don't think they're mutually exclusive like it's natural to me now because i learned it um but it wasn't natural from the beginning you know i sometimes i'll well i sent you that youtube video of me uh playing football in high school and that linked to another video of me singing in high school and i'll find videos like that or videos that are recorded in college and it's wild how different my voice is like delivery is different 100 percent but even my tone and inflection is different. My voice literally sounds different. There's a TED talk I did in 2013 that I wish I could remove from the internet because it's like awful. So it has to be learned. It has to be learned, but you get, you get better at it. 
I made a specific intention coming onto this show today that I was going to uh, be higher energy than I found myself being on podcasts lately. Um, because I'll come in and like I, I want everything to seem genuine and I want to speak from the heart, but uh, I'm not a naturally emotive person, but emotion is engaging. So I, I've kind of turned my myself up to 11 on this, not to an unnatural degree, but to like the height of what I can be when I'm delivering things, because I know that makes for a better listening experience. So it's all learned and it's easier to start layer layering on certain intention over time uh, with practice, but it, it really comes from a lot of speaking practice. Is there any specific practice that you can point to and say, this is something that helped me? The only practice I could point to is uh, like an athlete looking at the tape. You know, I will listen back to my own episodes of the show. I'll listen to interviews that I do, which is kind of uncomfortable. And it seems a little narcissistic to listen to yourself talk, but you got to do it. Like it's, it's the craft. It's, it's the, the work. And if I'm going to get better at it, I need to listen to it because it's a different mode of experience when you're in it and performing when you listen back with the ear of an editor or a producer or a coach to yourself, you notice things and you not note those down. You know, a lot of people, when they think about having a podcast or even speaking in public, they think, I hate the sound of my own voice. Yes. Everyone has that slight natural um, experience with hearing their own voice, but the more you do it, you, you realize you don't hate the sound of your voice. You hate, the sound of you sounding stupid or sounding like you don't want or expect yourself to sound. So as you do more speaking, it's not the voice that's the issue. It's, oh, I didn't say that the way I wanted to say it, or I didn't say that, you know, with the inflection that I wanted or with the energy that I wanted, you still hate the sound of your voice, but for different reasons um, with the way you're delivering things. So you have to, you have to look at the tape or listen to the tape. And you certainly spend a lot of time listening to the tape of your podcast. The way you edit the show is incredible. It's how I built this for creators is the best way I could describe it. But just the editing quality is so incredibly high. So how has your relationship to listening to your own voice changed from all that tape that you've listened to? It sounds kind of shitty, but I enjoy it now because a lot of the time... I'm performing in a way that I'm satisfied with. And when you do something and you look at it and you say, that is what I wanted to do. That is how I wanted to express that. You feel pride. You feel pride when you see yourself do something well or to what you perceive to be the height of your abilities. So a lot of times when I listen to the show because I've edited it well, it's an enjoyable experience for me. And I say, dang, I sound smart. I sound especially smart when I, when I talk at one and a half speed, how can I talk at one and a half speed in regular life? Uh, yeah. So it's, it's not nearly as, uh, you know, jarring as it used to be or unpleasant as it used to be. Now it's one of the things I can do to feel competent and confident in the way that I, you know, show up. Yeah. You mentioned the energy piece of it, how you're not normally, you feel like you're high energy on podcasts And I'm curious how you would rate your energy levels total one through 10 and you can't say seven. (laughs) I love when people take away seven. 
Uh, you mean just like in experiencing day-to-day life? Yeah. I'm probably like a consistent, I'll say eight. eight? Um, That's pretty good. It's not where I want to be, but um, look, I love the life I've made for myself. Like earning a living with your own art and creativity and being engaged to your best friend and having a puppy who's through puppyhood and isn't biting you anymore. Like my life is awesome. So like at a base level, I I just, I just love my life, but uh, I still, you know, get tired or there are things I don't look forward to and I can be low energy because I do put a lot on myself. So I work a lot and we're not really meant to work a lot or for extended periods of time, you know, there's a there's an episode. Do you listen to Invest Like the Best with Patrick O'Shaughnessy? I've listened to a bunch of episodes. I've listened to it in a while, but have you listened to his Boyd Vardy episode, The Tracker? I don't think I have. One of his best. I think it was actually what shot Boyd Vardy into like the public consciousness. <laughs> uh, I think the episode's called Live Like a Tracker. But the thing that stands out to me about that episode that I think about all the time is he talks about animals in the wild, lions in specific, I think. And he says, animals in the wild... They have two states of being. One of them is like intense, full speed motion when they're hunting and then intense, full shutdown rest. And the point he makes is most humans are kind of at like a constant state of pretty hard work, which means you're never hitting full capacity of full speed and you're never resting enough. And I think it's easy to live in that place as a creator. And when I have the highest energy, like I have today, this is actually good. We did this on a Monday. Because I rested pretty hard this weekend. Uh, and so it's easier for me to come back and be excited and feel like I'm chomping at the bit. Like, oh, I've had, you know, days to rest and recruit, recoup and I'm chomping at the bit. I've been thinking about these problems. It's time to sit down and solve those problems. Whereas if you're just working 10 hours a day, every day of the week, you never give yourself a break to come at things with fresh eyes. Yeah, I wonder which came first. The Naval quote about training like a lion or being like a lion and then not being like a cow with the lion being an entrepreneur and the cow being a nine to five worker or that Boyd Vardy episode, because yeah, I attributed that concept to Naval, but it's possible that he just got it from Boyd Vardy. Look, man, it probably came from some tribal leader centuries (laughs) ago, you know, (laughs) Like does it at some point it doesn't matter. Like it, it there's so many different points of origin that are earlier than both of those people. Um the lion came first. <laughs> Great point. And and that's what a really important concept I found from creating content is just because somebody has said it before doesn't mean that you can't say it too, or you can't repurpose that concept in a way that is more authentic to you. So are there any examples you can point to where you've done that? You've taken a concept that you've heard somewhere else and you've put your own spin on it or applied it yourself to create something new. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people in the space of building an online business, right? Pat being one of the, the forerunners. So when I'm really down on myself and critical of myself, it's like, well, I'm not doing something unique enough in terms of like my message, my mission. There are a lot of people doing this. How am I going to be different? Um, so what I think a lot about is developing my own frameworks and ways of approaching things that are different. That moat method I shared with you earlier is like one big effort that I've been putting some time into for weeks. 
uh, to look at genuinely, like what are the, what are the principles of being an online creator that are going to be enduring 10 years from now? You know, I'm probably not going to out tactic the, the 20 year old who just like really wants to learn how to do Twitter well. And I don't have to, I can use my experience and my, my years of interactions with other people to look at a level up and that might be more enduring over time. And I'll, I'll put a name to that. I'll put some some real form to that and try to build some equity behind the idea of this moat method, you know, that, that could absolutely change two weeks from now, who knows, but whatever framework I go out with, it's, it's an effort of, you know, being unique. What some people do is take an existing framework and basically just change the words around and name it something their own that I have a problem with, because then we'll end up with just like a lot of names for the same thing for the sake of somebody being able to do uh, a book tour. Um, so I, I try to think about it in terms of what is not being said or put in this way that I can put my my name behind. But otherwise, you know, there's there's some real value in curating best practices and other people's ideas for people who are trying to find efficient knowledge transfer. That's what curation does well for people is to say, I have this desire to learn this thing. And I trust that this person will give me the best pathway through it, even if it's not all of their own proprietary ideas that get me the outcome. Yeah, I would argue Creative Elements does that in that it's a bunch of other people's ideas. For sure. And you're pulling it together in a really interesting way. And I trust your curation. And I like how the spin that you put on each episode. So I'm like, oh. I trust Jay, I trust Jay for how he does this. So I, I think it's something you're already doing in, in some respect. Thanks, man. Yeah, I mean, I think you know you asked earlier how somebody can find their unique message, and I kind of said, well, you got to earn it with time. But I think you can also earn it more quickly by being this curator yeah. and being this like really ambitious learner of a person who crash test dummies your way through reading a lot of content and then saying, look, I've, I've taken the time to consume and absorb all of this. Here are the 10 things that I think you should really know. And in that exercise of pulling all these experiences together, you know, this, this idea I just shared with you earlier that came from a hundred episodes of creative elements. It came from the patterns that I found in doing this curation effort to say, okay, what are the things that are true about these people? What have they done? And, you know, I think that's a way to kind of kickstart finding your own message is to say, there's some patterns to be found here. And those patterns can become a template to help another person get to this outcome. How can I take all of this, all these ideas and find and create the template out of it? That can be my thing. I love that. And speaking of your own message, I believe this is your own message. The rule of one scroll. What is that? That was the first time I've ever heard the rule of one scroll is when you've mentioned it in in a previous podcast. And I thought that's so brilliant. (laughs) So what is that and how do you come up with that? Yeah, uh, I think cold email is an art form. I think I'm really good at it. And I take pride in being good at it. But the idea of the one scroll is if you are sending an email to somebody that they're probably not expecting and you're making an ask of them, you're going to give yourself the best odds if they can read that whole email in one scroll of their thumb or less on a mobile phone. So it it forces you to be concise. Again, that, that inverted pyramid style of writing. And you have to be really clear about what the ask is. 
but you're most likely to get a response, even a negative response, but you're most likely to get a response if I can hear your request quickly and understand what it is. Um, otherwise, you know, I'm just going to throw it aside because you can't control when somebody gets that message in email. And a lot of times they're reading your message on a bathroom break in between meetings. And they're just trying to clear their inbox to zero as quickly as possible. So if they can't even read your message quickly, it's gone and they didn't consider it at all. Yeah. So I actually wrote down your cold email pitch because I thought it was so good. So I'm going to read it right now and you tell me if it's changed at all, just so that people can have some idea or context. Is that cool? Yeah, for sure. So the subject is interview requests in brackets. Can we talk about your creative career? And then you have a customized reason why you're reaching out to them. You say, I'm the host of a podcast called Creative Elements, where I talk to creators about how they made a a living from their art and creativity. And I want to talk to people like you who made it work. The pitch in bold. And this is, I think, another paragraph. It's a narrative interview style. Uh, It's a narrative interview style on a podcast network. It's been featured on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. I've interviewed guests like James Clear and Seth Godin. Would you be open to a 45-minute remote interview for the show sometime in the next few months. If so, I'll schedule us. I'll send a scheduling link. No pressure. Thank you for the consideration. Is that roughly how you do it to this day? Still the pitch. The only thing I've added is now I've uh, added a line to say that the show has crossed a million downloads. Whoa, congrats. Yeah. I mean, it's just, if you're asking for somebody to give you their time, they want to know that you understand the value of their time, that you're respecting it. And, either by crushing them with social proof or being pretty honest about the fact that, you know, this is a favor. Those are the two ways to get them to say yes. Um, where people screw up is they, even if they intuitively know it's a favor, they might not own up to that. They'll like kind of misrepresent that this is going to be a good thing for this busy person when it's like pretty obvious that this isn't going to move the needle for that busy person. And even my show, a million downloads, a lot of the people that I have on the show I'm not moving the needle for Tim Urban, you know, like it's still a favor. So you really have to own up to the fact that like, Hey, I am on your time. I'm on your schedule. I'll make this work whenever you want. It's going to be 45 minutes, uh, you know, and I'm willing to do this in the next couple of months. When you expand the time window like that and say, do you have time sometime in the next couple of months? It just makes it feel like, of course, yeah, 45 minutes in the next couple of months. Of course I have that. (laughs) It's kind of using people's psychology against them, I guess, because we all have things where we're like, oh, yeah, I'll do that. And you schedule it months out because it doesn't feel painful to us in the moment. But then months pass and you look on the calendar next week and you say, shit, I don't want to do that. <laughs> but you still do it. And sometimes you're getting the time of these like pretty busy, you know, impressive people. Yeah, you lean into that. <laughs> <laughs> so I've heard you say that creative elements had an unfair advantage when you started because of the podcast network podglomerate, I believe it is who pushed it and gained traffic where that was something that you hadn't had with your first show. And I'm curious, like what exactly does this guy do? The CEO whose name is slipping me in this moment who I followed yesterday, what does he do to make these shows grow at such a rapid speed? Well, a lot of it is um, 
leaning into the marketability of a new show. Because podcasts that are weekly shows into perpetuity, there aren't a whole lot of marketable moments within that show's lifespan. You can try to make some episode a marketable thing, but it's tough. So the most marketable moment you have is in the beginning when the show is getting started, when there's newness and possibility in people's mind. So Jeff and the Podglomerate did a really good job of having conversations with people they know at podcast listening apps to get the show some placement in its in discover sections and things like that when the show launched to build an initial audience for the show. And then from there, you know, you can lean into word of mouth and, and, you know, all kinds of growth tactics um, because you've gotten such a good start. And the other thing that I did on my end of the bargain that's helped the show tremendously, even though Seth Godin wasn't the first interview I recorded or James Clear wasn't the second interview I recorded, I made them the first episode to air because I'm blown away still like every month, month over month. Some of the most popular episodes are those two episodes because people hear about the show and they go all the way back to episode one. I don't know why people do that, but they do. I'm so glad that I'm proud of those episodes um, because you know, now anytime I reach out to a guest, they look at the show, they look at the guest list, they look at the reviews, they see the number in the email, a million downloads, it all screams legitimacy. And so they consider it. Yeah. You know, you mentioned you had five growth tactics before that were part of your method. And I'd love to tackle those here. It feels like an appropriate place. Yeah, I, I've, I think there are five strategies for growing anything. And they're not mutually exclusive. Like you can pursue all five of these simultaneously, um, or you can choose to do one really, really hard. Uh, The first one is virality and sharing. So making content that is inherently shareable or viral, that will help you grow. We know that. Second one is SEO, search engine optimization. There's traffic out there every day, every moment searching for things. And if your content is the answer to those things, those search engines will do the work of getting new people to find your content. Third one is earned media. That means you're doing something that is so interesting and newsworthy that uh, press outlets and media outlets decide to cover it on their own volition. Uh, A really bad example that comes to mind is like Logan Paul's uh, forest fiasco. Like, I don't think he did that to get bad media, but it was such a ridiculous thing that media covered it and got a lot of eyeballs on his stuff for better or for worse. So when you do something that's new and different and outrageous, often uh, you get earned media. Fourth thing is collaboration, finding other people that want to collaborate on a new piece of work or to share your work in front of their people and you in front of theirs. And the fifth thing is paid acquisition, uh, whether that's advertising on a social media platform or within newsletters paying for the right to get in front of somebody else's audience has creative elements done any paid acquisition at this point yet we have uh we've tried out a couple of the smaller podcast players in paying for placement on their discover pages and it works to some degree i don't know that it's economically as interesting as other routes to use the same funds but we've we've tried that and when you talk about creative elements, which of those five do you think you've done the best or have worked the best? I think it's got to be uh, sharing 
and collaboration. I mean, the paid acquisition was helpful in some ways because it boosts numbers a little bit and that helps for credibility and things, but they're not usually the best listeners. Uh, If I want to do paid acquisition well in podcasting, which I do want to do, and I'll probably do more experimentation with this, it's actually buying either host read ads on other people's shows or buying the right to drop an entire episode in somebody's feed. And that can be kind of expensive. Um, But that's the way to do it and get real quality listeners, I think. The best thing we do is just creating a good enough product that gets shared with word of mouth. Like what I'm glued to every week, really, but especially every month, is looking at um, download numbers for Apple Podcasts and Spotify because they're the two biggest players. And if those things are growing, I assume it's mostly organic because we're not getting featured placements on those apps. It's really hard. Um, And then maybe collaboration. I mean, some of my guests because they are name recognition, I can actually just borrow the fact that their name is recognizable to get people to click play for the first time. And usually if you click play on an episode, you're going to enjoy it. Uh, It's not going to be something that's like worse than you expected. So I think a lot of those people stick. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely the highest produced James clear episode I've ever listened to highest produced Tim urban episode I've ever heard. So I could definitely see that being the case. And you talking just now reminded me that one metric that I would like to start tracking is how many times did somebody share an episode? And that's kind of hard to track, but you could go based on retweets or organic people talking about it on social media. I think that would be a really helpful way to gauge if what you're doing is valuable to people. Yeah, I've tried to spend some time doing... um creative elements as a search on Twitter. And I put it in brackets even to say like, are the two words creative elements used next to each other? And are people sharing the show? And sometimes they are, but more often than not, if they are, they um, uh, tag me. So I'm already aware of it. Right. But the name is also like kind of like people talk about the creative elements of certain projects all the time. So you end up with like a bunch of stuff that has those two words, but is not the podcast. And it's kind of hard to wade through those things. Yeah. I'm curious if you would, if you, it would make sense for you to reply to those people and say, Hey, like, you know, I saw you talking about creative elements. I actually have this episode about this creative element that you're talking about. (laughs) Maybe I could, I could, I could see that. I think it would be like a low converting thing. It would convert to some degree. So it's, it's always a question, you know, as a creator, your biggest question all the time is time allocation. Like I have limited time. Where am I putting it for the different, you know, initiatives and goals that I have in my business where it's going to be the most effective and a lot of, you know, that type of guerrilla marketing, it's really high on the cost side of things from a time perspective in fairly low on the return side of things so i end up not not doing much of it yeah that's like the scale on use the do the unscalable is is the common commonly referred to statement but um speaking of time i'm really grateful for you jay for all the time you've given today and all the wisdom you've shared it's really appreciated as somebody new to the creator journey new but old but on the path again and just uh just really honored that you would spend the time here today with me. Anything else you'd like to mention before I ask to get all your information? No, 
No, I think uh, I think we did it pretty good. I think we covered most of what I was hoping we cover. Awesome. That makes me so happy to hear. So uh, where can we send people to connect with you further? You can find me on Twitter, at jklaus. Creative Elements is a show you'll enjoy if you like podcasts. Check that out. And subscribe over at creativecompanion.club if you want to read a weekly email from me. Awesome. Easy enough. All linked below. Thank you, Jay, for your time. I really appreciate you. Thanks so much, Danny. This is fun.